We've been talking all this month about welcome. Last week was a story about one of the founding figures in our tradition, welcome after a shipwreck in New Jersey. Before that, we talked about what it means to be a people of welcome, how there is a culture to this place that, that I have felt that does pretty well at welcoming folks. At least it does in my admittedly biased experience of the last couple months. This is a congregation of warmth with potlucks and parking lots full on weekdays. It is a pleasure to be a part of this. The congregation, it seems, is committed to this. We want to be a people of welcome. We want to greet folks as they come in to be a growing church, a dynamic, vital part of the community. But let's be honest, there are not many congregations that wouldn't say those things. And it is certainly true that not every church is as welcoming as its membership would like to be. So what is it that holds congregations back? There's a story told in seminaries as a, as a kind of case study. It's not a specific church. It's an example of this. Imagine a congregation that has as a goal, they want to attract young families. The same congregation is asked in a survey what they appreciate most about worship on Sunday morning and the response in the survey is we appreciate the time of silent meditation. Sure enough, a young baby with an infant visits on a Sunday morning, and like clockwork, the baby starts to cry during the time of silent meditation. What does that moment look like? Will the congregation seem welcoming? Will the young family be back for a second visit? Now, the, the value that the congregation puts on quiet in that example is not wrong. It might even be admirable. But in the moment, there's a disconnect between their aspiration of welcome and their deeply held traditions. This is a constant tension in organized religion. There's a, a consultant and a minister named Dan Hodgkiss who wrote a, whole, a couple books about this. But in one of them, he says, religion is at its best no friend of the status quo. Religion transforms people. No one touches holy ground and stays the same. Religious leaders stir the pot by pointing to the contrast between life as it is and life as it should be and urging us to close the gap. Religious insights provide the handhold that people need to criticize injustice, rise above self-interest, and take risks to provide healing to a wounded world. Organizations on the other hand, conserve. Institutions capture, schematize, and codify persistent patterns of activity. People sometimes say institutions are conservative and smile as if they had said something clever. But conservation is what institutions do. A well-organized, ordered congregation lays down schedules, puts policies on paper, places people in positions, and generally brings order out of chaos. in theory. 
organizations can be flexible, creative, and iconoclastic, but only by resisting some of their most basic instincts. So no wonder, then, organized religion is so difficult. People create sanctuaries. Congregations create sanctuaries where people can nurture and inspire each other with results no one can predict. The stability of a religious institution is necessary for the insta instability that religious transformation brings. The need to balance both sides of this paradox, the transforming power of religion and the stabilizing power of organization makes leading congregations a unique challenge. Thus ends the Hodgkiss. Organizations can serve, religions transform. I read this to say that it is a tension that is no more, no more apparent than when we welcome folks in. The very act of welcoming people into a democratic institution such as our own is necessarily transformative. Our churches are defined by their congregations. Transform the makeup of the congregation and you transform the church and its institutions. And sometimes our, our most cherished traditions are the very ones that are an obstacle to that transformation. Over the last few years at the, the National Unitarian Universalist stage, we've seen this play out in a very specific and public way in the words of a single hymn. And I do apologize, after I planned to give this sermon, UU World released a long article about this. So um, if you've read it, I apologize if you're hearing it again. If you want more detail, please go see your denominational magazine. <laughs> so if you've been to a protest or vigil or any event in the last 10 years with more than half a dozen Unitarian Universalists, there's a good chance that you have seen bright yellow t-shirts with standing on the side of love written on them and a big heart. Those t-shirts and the UU affiliate organization that makes them got their name from a hymn. The story goes that in 2004, Jason Shelton, for many years the music minister at our congregation in Nashville, was visiting UU headquarters at 25 Beacon Street in Boston. Jason is a composer and he was part of the task force that wrote the teal hymnal that we've been singing from this morning. He wrote The Fire of Commitment, our opening hymn. Uh, Blue Boat Home, I believe, is his arrangement, although somebody else wrote the words. The story goes that he was in Boston for the hymnal commission and he was sitting with then UUA President Bill Sinkford. Reverend Sinkford got a phone call from a news organization asking for comments. This was the summer of 2004 and a presidential campaign was well underway and there was a proposal put on the table to pass a constitutional amendment defining marriage as between a man and a woman. The news organization was asking Reverend Sinkford in his capacity as representative of Unitarian Universalism for comment. 
Reverend Sinkford looks at the phone for a minute and in a response that has become legendary said, we stand on the side of love. Click. Jason start, started writing immediately. He would say later that the words seemed to leap off the walls of 25 Beacon Street. And what emerged was a hymn standing on the side of love. That hymn gave a name to the emerging organization and movement within Unitarian Universalism, coordinating our response to that proposal. For many of us, that was one of Unitarian Universalism's proudest moments. I spent a good bit of 2012 wearing the t-shirt, singing the hymn, doing voter mobilization for the Maryland vote on marriage equality. In 2015, I was in Portland at our General Assembly when the Supreme Court decision passing marriage equality nationally, recognizing marriage equality nationally, was released. It is the one time in my life, in, in a record that will stand unbroken as long as Nebraska's sellout record stands unbroken, <laughs> it is the only time that I've seen 4,000 Unitarian Universalists drop what they're doing and break into spontaneous praise and worship. And, and, all through that time, there was rumbling that folks felt excluded from the language of standing on the side of love. This reached a boiling point a year later in 2016 when the theme of our yearly minister's gathering was walking as spiritual practice. If you do not walk, how does that feel? If you cannot stand, how does the hymn sound? Now, of course, on one hand, the hymn is metaphor. Jason Shelton's been clear about that. Bill Singford has been clear about the intent of his original statement. We sing lots of hymns that aren't metaphor. We are not literally breathing in peace. We are not on fire when we sing the fire of commitment. When we sing, guide my feet as I run this race, we're not running laps around the sanctuary. But the critique is not ultimately about the literalness of the metaphor. It's about, as religious educator and polio survivor Helen Boxwell put it, how you need to show me that you know that I'm in the room. You need to show me that you know that I'm in the room. There were a lot of hard feelings during that. And in the wake of the 2016 gathering, it seemed like half the ministers in the UUA wanted to choose the words of a hymn instead of their colleagues who were hurting, and the other half seemed about to head out the doors of this shared undertaking. I will always admire Jason Shelton's response. He waited a few months. He didn't, he didn't say anything during that gathering. 
But then he preached and he published a sermon. He told about writing the song, about how he never saw it as a literal standing, and how what actually mattered was that everybody knew that he knew that they were in the room. He asked that we change the lyrics of the song he had written, taking his prerogative as the author, changing the words from standing on the side of love to answering the call of love. He said, it's theologically more honest. Love will take us to places that are uncomfortable when we answer its call. Love calls us to relationship, to letting go of our attachment, and God knows I'm attached to these words. <laughs> but love is more important. What lessons might this hold for us as we think about how we welcome here at the Unitarian Church of Lincoln? First is four words, something that I struggle with, but repeat to myself just about every day. Intent is not impact. Intent is not impact. The intent of standing on the side of love was never to exclude. It was pretty much the opposite. Yet that doesn't mean that people weren't excluded. Critically, I don't get to decide whether or not you feel excluded by something I say. I can't decide how the words that I speak impact you but I can listen to what I'm told. We all do this, right? I like to think I have pretty good intentions. I want to make the world, my children, better than the world I was born into. I've spent the better part of my life getting the tools to do that. And I have put my foot so far into my mouth at times <laughs> without having any idea that I'm doing it that I am astounded I can still talk. <laughs> there's a famous example of this phenomenon in church welcomes. There's a, there's a practice, um, thankfully not as common now, um, but it used to be very common in smaller churches. The practice has been to ask new visitors as part of the announcements to stand up and introduce themselves. And the intent of that is to welcome somebody in to say, oh, you're new. We want to we know who you are. But the impact of that is, of course, asking somebody to stand up in front of 100 strangers and poof, you're on the spot. So this is why we ask members to carry these striped mugs. It allows visitors to define the terms of the interaction. If you want to ask questions, great. Here's how. And if you want to just observe and experience worship without expectations, great. We're glad you're here. The other thing I take from the standing on the side of love story is the value of grace in responding to change. There was nobody that had more of a right to be upset than Jason Shelton. He could easily have said, it's a metaphor, guys, and walked out of the room. I don't think any of us would have faulted him for that. But instead, 
he spent time reflecting. And then he said, how can we transform this? How can we keep the heart of what's important in this message that I hold so dear? And how can we do it in a way that Helen Boxwell knows that I know that she's in the room? One of the metaphors that he uses often in this comes from anti-racism work. The, it, it's easy to think of all the isms, racism, sexism, ableism, as something like tonsils, right? We get our tonsils taken out, we don't have tonsillitis anymore. We went to a workshop, so we're not sexist anymore. <laughs> you laugh, but this makes it really hard when we're told our words and our actions had an impact that was sexist, ableist, racist. We went to the workshop, we got our tonsils taken out. But of course, this isn't tonsillitis. It's dental hygiene. Because <laughs> if somebody points out that you have spinach in your teeth, the response is not, I do not. <laughs> or, I didn't mean to. Most of us check a mirror and grab a toothpick. In some anti-racism workshops, they actually, um, in order to get past defensiveness, um, will we'll just say, toothpick. As a reminder that you have spinach in your teeth. So this is ongoing work. It's probably fair to note that answering the call of love as rewritten still has metaphors for both hearing and vision embedded in it. The song I said two weeks ago best illustrates my idea of welcoming. Draw the circle wide. The central image of that song is standing side by side. There will always be ways we can better welcome folks. And it will always be worth taking that step. That thing that Dan Hodgkiss calls transformation. This is hard. It's probably appropriate that next month we're talking about courage as our monthly theme. Welcoming implies risk. Opening doors means we don't know what will happen. I wrote the sermon on Friday. I'm reading it now and it reads differently. Risk is part of welcome. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't welcome. That doesn't mean that the risk isn't worth taking. So we'll talk about courage next month. I won't be here next week. My wife is finally moving to Nebraska. So next Sunday I will be at home making sure that the house is clean before she gets here. <laughs> so in October, next, next week the worship associates have, have a great service about welcoming in different traditions and what that looks like. And, and I know that that will be a great service. And in October, we'll start talking about courage. And I hope that you can have 
courage to bear with me through one change that we will also make in October. Another uh, Jason Shelton innovation, actually, uh, was the observation that uh, children in worship enjoy hymns more than they do announcements. <laughs> what, what this means practically is that starting in October, we're going to change the order of service. We're going to take the, the beginning part of the service when kids are present here to really focus on the stuff that, that binds generations together. You know, when, when I talk to people, what they remember of the religion of their childhood is not, is not announcements. They remember songs, though. They remember songs. So the beginning of the service, starting in October, is going to be a little bit more singing, a little bit more interaction. We'll build that as a true time for all ages. And then once the children have left, then we'll do announcements. And that's going to be a little weird. It's going to feel a little strange, but we got this. We're good. We have lofty aspirations here. We want to change the world. We want to be a place of welcome. We, and we can be a transformational place. We are a transformational place. We can do that and keep the heart of what we do. But it will take work. There is always change. See you in two weeks. And for our closing hymn, in one of the least surprising hymn choices I've made, <laughs> we'll sing hymn 1014, but we'll sing it as answering the call of love. Anytime you see standing on the side of, just sing it as answering the call of.
Sometimes we build a barrier to keep love tightly bound. We are called to break down those barriers, to untie those binds. Let us go forth and do that here and in every day of our lives. Amen.